part of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator, Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, the UAW has a tentative agreement at Ford. What that means, we're going to break it down. Uh, We're also talking about Starbucks implicitly endorsing a boycott of its union stores because they oppose Israel's killing of civilians. Amazing. The APWU's president is calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. All that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number and the line is open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We've also got a voicemail and uh, the line is open for texts throughout the week. Uh, You can call or text us throughout the week and we might respond on the next show. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap up here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us anywhere you find anything online, in particular at our website, tvlr.fm. You can sign up there to our newsletter, where we send Last Week in Southern Labor and Boss Watch in written form directly to your inbox, so that you know what workers and bosses in the South are up to every single week. Week. We are also, of course, on Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube, all at the Valley Labor Report. Just a reminder, folks, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining donor to the program, make a one-time or make a one-time donation, you can go to TVLR.fm slash donate. You can buy our new merch at TVLR.fm slash store, or you can go to patreon.com slash the valley labor report if you're a member of a union then please do think about getting your local or read or uh, you know state council or international union to sponsor the show you can reach out to us for more details on that let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor We welcome all of our listeners, whether you are on YouTube, Facebook, Unclaimed Mysteries Internet Radio, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. We are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check it out. 
Absolutely. Ben Boyd is in the chat from Local 2000, UAW Local 2000 at Ford. Welcome, Ben, and everybody else that's tuning in. We really appreciate your time. We're going to start off, as we typically do, with Last Week in Southern Labor. Last Week in Southern Labor is a segment where we talk about what workers were up to in the South in the last week, because workers don't get enough love in the media. We're always doing stuff, always winning elections, winning strikes, winning bargaining, Uh, and sometimes losing, and it's important for folks to understand what's going on. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the new election filings for the last week. The employer filed for a union election after a majority of the 21 workers at Starbucks in Atlanta, Georgia, showed support for unionization with Starbucks Workers United. Six workers at Lincare Incorporated in Wheeling, West Virginia, filed for a union election with the Teamsters, Chauffeurs, Warehousemen, and Helpers Local 67. Three workers at Johnson Controls in Springfield, Missouri, filed for a union election with the United Association of Journeymen and Apprentices of the Plumbing and Pipe Fitting Industry. Industry, local 669. That's the UA's Road Sprinkler Fitters local. Four workers at CMI Management in Quantico Base, Virginia, filed for a union election with the International Union of Operating Engineers, IUOE, local 99. 72 workers at Centerpoint Energy in Byram, Mississippi, filed for a union election with UA local 619. 36 workers at Patriot Plumbing in Winchester, Kentucky, filed for a union election with UA local 4. 14 firefighters at L3 Harris Technologies in Greenville, Texas filed for a union election with the United Automobile, Aerospace, and Agricultural Implement Workers of America, otherwise known as the UAW, Local 967. The employer filed for a union election after a majority of the 21 workers at a Starbucks in Denton, Texas showed support for unionization with the Starbucks Workers United. 11 workers at Grantmakers for Effective Organizations in Washington, D.C. filed for a union election with the Service Employees International Union, SEIU, Local 1199. 11 security guards at Garda World Cash Services in North North Charleston, South Carolina filed for a union election with the Security, Police, and Fire Professionals of America, SPFPA International Union. Anti-union workers at Black Hawk Mining, LLC, Glancy Surface Mine in Wharton, West Virginia, filed a petition to decertify the United Mine Workers of America, UMWA Local 1503, as the union representing the 88 workers there. Two workers at the FedEx office in Austin, Texas, filed for a union election with the Lone Star Labor Education Union. Never heard of them before. Anti-union workers at Valero Services in West Memphis, Arkansas, withdrew their petition to decertify the United Steelworkers International Union as the union representing the seven workers there, so the USW will remain. Two workers at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. withdrew their petition for a union election with the D.C. Nurses Association, as did eight workers at L.N.W. Supply Corporation in Carnes, Tennessee. They withdrew their petition for a union election with the Teamsters Local 519, and this happening only one week before the election was scheduled. 27 workers at Swissport Fueling in Fort Myers, Florida, withdrew their request to amend the bargaining unit there. And in election results, anti-union workers at Max Finkelstein LLC in Winchester, Virginia, filed a petition to decertify uh, 
The Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, as the union representing the 500-plus warehouse employees and drivers there. And before getting to the election, the union filed a disclaimer of interest with the NLRB in which it, quote, waives and disclaims any right to represent the employees. It seems like the union thought the election was heading to a pretty overwhelming no vote, but a shame to see them surrender nevertheless. Six workers at Given Glass and Glazing in South Charleston, West Virginia, voted to decertify the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, IUPAT, District 53, as the union representing them. And 81 workers at Be- Pepsi Beverages North America in Collierville, Tennessee, voted to keep the Teamsters Local 667 as their union in a decertification, ele- in a decertification election. Eight workers at Cisco Louisville in, you guessed it, Louisville, Tennessee, voted in favor of Louisville, unionism. Kentucky, you mean, right? Louisville, Kentucky. Sorry. <laughs> in Louisville, Kentucky, voted in favor of unionization with the General Drivers, Warehousemen, and Helpers Union, Local 89. Nine workers at SSM Health St. Louis University Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, voted in favor of unionization with SEIU uh, Missouri, Kansas Division. Nine workers at Blue Sprocket Pressing in Harrisonburg, Virginia, voted in favor of unionization with the Teamsters Local 29. 329 workers at Lockheed Martin in Lexington, Kentucky, voted in favor of unionization, 156 to 133, with the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, IAMAW. That's a big win. Union rights for security officers won a runoff election after none of the three unions vying to represent 67 security guards at Sintera Group in Washington, D.C. got a majority in the first round in August. 600 workers for the city of Richmond voted in favor of unionization with the Teamsters Local 322. This is the first time that any union has represented Richmond workers and uh, is the first time that they have held an election since collective bargaining became legal in Virginia in 2021. There's uh, quite a few updates around strikes and bargaining. The NLRB found that the National Autobahn Society has violated labor law during negotiations with its union employees, represented by the Bird Union, CWA, by refusing to bargain over mandatory subjects of bargaining, by unilaterally imposing changes, by denying union members benefits given to non-union employees, and failing to disclose relevant financial information to the union. Negotiations have been going on for 18 months. Amazon Teamsters have extended their strike from California to Georgia last week, and Memphis Soy Protein Production Workers with the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers, and Grain Millers International Union, BCTGM, Local 390G, have been on strike since June. The uh, 4,000 UAW members at Mack Trucks continue their strike, as do UAW members at GM and Stellantis. UAW members at Ford have a tentative agreement, and reports are that GM is now matching Ford's wage proposal, so we could be seeing tentative agreements coming at GM and potentially Stellantis soon. Shangri-La Dispensary Workers with the United Food and Commercial Workers, UFCW Local 655 in Columbia, Missouri, are still on strike. They began in May. And Three Brothers Coffee Workers with UFCW Local 1995 in Nashville, Tennessee, have been been on strike since June. 
There's a few updates in policy, politics, and legislation where last week a bill was introduced in Congress by Adam Schiff, AOC, and Donald Norcross to make striking workers eligible for unemployment insurance nationwide. Receivers of billions of dollars in public money from the CHIPS Act have nevertheless been found to have very exploitative labor practices. That's why last week a community coalition sent an open letter to the CEOs of beneficiary companies calling on them to uphold the standards recommended in the act. From the Alabama Reflector, the end of the COVID emergency will mean a 15% cut in the Alabama Department of Human Resources DHR funding in the current fiscal year due to to declines in federal funding. In internal union affairs, after an election complaint was filed in the officer elections for the Machinists District Lodge 19, that is the national division of the International Association of Machinists that represent railroad workers, the Department of Labor has now ordered a rerun of the election, date to be determined. Palestine was reportedly a hot topic at the National AFL-CIO Executive Council meeting last week, and it was reportedly dominated by a 30-minute anti-Israel monologue from the president of the American Postal Workers Union, who described himself as, quote, an anti-Zionist Jew. The presidents of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the Laborers International Union of North America, and the International Union of Operating Engineers signed a national tri-trade solar agreement governing the construction of utility-scale solar projects, making it easier for developers, contractors, and unions to bring critical renewable energy generation online to power America's communities. That's a very exciting development. And that wraps it up for last week in Southern Labor. We appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, Got a few more folks in the chat. Strom says, Solidarity from South Carolina with a $2 super chat. Pittsburgh Dude 87 says, Maybe the Lockheed Martin Union can shut them down to avoid sending more weapons over (laughs) abroad. Uh, That would be great. (laughs) I'm not not totally sure if uh, they'd be on board with that. Uh, But the ILWU has done stuff like that in the past. And uh, very, very cool of them to do that. Infinite Content says, Hey, uh, SEPTA's union has a tentative agreement to avoid a strike next week. Very, very good. Pittsburgh Dude 87 says, whatever standards are recommended regarding the CHIPS Act versus required, you can be sure that corporations will take the cheap, exploitative way out. And that's exactly the issue with the CHIPS Act. And we have had reporters on the program talking about the labor exploitation uh, that companies are doing with our money from the CHIPS Act. Because they are not required. These uh, standards are not required. They are only recommended. And that's the issue uh, with all this money that is uh, you know, flooding the court in the semiconductor manufacturing industry. Um, and and you know the, the argument against requiring it would be that it would make it too onerous and that these companies might, might not choose to create semiconductors uh, in the United States at all, which is uh, firstly a dubious argument I doubt it if you give people an, if you give companies enough money uh, you can saddle them with whatever requirements you want but even if that were the case we could just do it as the government <laughs> I mean there's absolutely nothing stopping the United States government from standing up operations and and uh, uh, manufacturing semiconductors themselves other than you know a lack of imagination and uh and, you know, neoliberal uh, brainworms. 
Uh, so we're going to go ahead and take our first break. When we get back, we're going to be talking about the tentative agreement at Ford. There are some really big gains, and we're going to be talking about what that means next in the UAW's stand-up strike. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Valley Labor Report. Benefit Architects has proudly supported union members and union-made products for over 35 years. If you are a federal employee and an AFGE member, you're eligible for hundreds of dollars in money-saving benefits, including group life insurance, dental insurance, and AFLAC insurance. Additionally, if you're a union member but don't work for the federal government, you can still qualify for several of these money-saving policies. So give Tate Cure a call at 256-215-6769 for details and to enroll. Again, that is Tate Hewer at 256-215-6769. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and family members are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough even to keep their jobs. We can fix this. It's time for us to find a way to close the health care coverage gap so that people can remain at work. Let's make this a priority. Let's close this gap and cover Alabama. To learn more and how you can help, visit coveralabama.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. 
IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAT. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. all wealth all wealth should go to labor and you are listening to the valley labor report my name is jacob morrison my co-host is adam keller and uh, we've got some great stuff for you today in particular the uaw's new tentative agreement at ford um really 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 cool stuff happening there um and you know this agreement came after the uaw expanded their strike to the 6,800 workers at Stellantis's Sterling Heights assembly plant in Michigan on Monday, which is the uh, Stellantis's most profitable plant, and 5,000 workers at General Motors Arlington assembly plant in Texas on Tuesday. It also came after the week prior, the UAW struck Ford's Kentucky truck plant, which is responsible for 54% of Ford's profits, and another huge Ford moneymaker is the plant that manufactures the Ford F-150s. And so the what they were doing in the stand-up strike uh, by standing up at uh, Sterling Heights in Michigan and uh, uh, the Stellantis' Sterling Heights assembly plant in Michigan and General Motors' Arlington assembly plant in Texas on Monday and Tuesday was basically telegraphing that if Ford didn't meet them where they needed to be, then on Wednesday, the F-150 plant was going out. And so that is, uh, and, and that's what Fain said in his live stream uh, earlier in the week. They, he said that Ford knew what was coming for them on Wednesday if we didn't get a deal. And so Ford was highly motivated to get a deal because uh, after the Kentucky truck plant was taken out, if you take out the Ford F-150 plant, you are really, really cutting into Ford's operations uh, and their ability to uh, maintain a profit. And so, uh, so they're... Uh, and you know this uh is huge the the strategy is hugely responsible for them being able to get what they got here at ford um and you know we're never going to see obviously a you know uh recantations by the extremely silly people who were saying that this strike strategy was not radical enough or that they knew better how to conduct a strike because they have YouTube shows and have <laughs> never been in a union in their life, uh, much less been in contract negotiations, much less ask their coworkers to go on strike, right? Um, but, uh, but still, 
for people that were listening to them, it's definitely worth, uh, you know, definitely worth taking a look at what they want in this tentative agreement and how they want it. Because by telegraphing, you know, that this is what's next for you, Ford, if you don't meet us where you need to meet us on Wednesday, they were only able to do that because they were striking all three at once, but they weren't striking all of all three at once. So they were able to play the companies against each other exactly like the companies have been playing workers against each other for decades. And you know that this is an effective strategy because the CEOs have been going absolutely nuts in the business press talking about how unfair it is to play these companies off of each other uh, when they need to instead they need to be united against the non-union uh, automakers. And, uh, you know, <laughs> but this is what companies have been doing to workers for decades. They've been whipsawing us. They've been whipsawing us in union strongholds versus other union strongholds saying, OK, you know, this union local here in Michigan, uh, they accepted this. And so that's why here in New York, you've got to accept this. They've been doing that uh, inside of the country with Union plants versus non-union plants saying to union plants, look, if you don't if you don't accept this, then we're going to have to open a non-union plant and take all of our production over there instead of working here. And they've been doing that with plants in the United States and plants outside of the United States saying, look, if you can't do it for this much here, then we'll go to Mexico where we can do it for dollars a day. And that is also the importance of not only ending tears in the United States, but also ending tears internationally. And um, the I, I am very, very hopeful that that will be a big project of the UAW moving forward after this strike is over, um, uh, specifically getting wages internationally closer to what we have in Western countries, in European and uh, the United States manufacturing centers. So anyway, let's talk about that uh, tentative agreement that they won at Ford. Oh, but also one, one more exposition before we get into the details of the agreement. Um, the press has been reporting this agreement much more um, cautiously than they have with any other tentative agreement that I have ever seen in my life. Um, and I like that. And that is because of the way that Sean Fain has uh, presented this, right? Like, so basically at every, in every other union, when they get a tentative agreement, you know, they're really, really pushing it. Ratification is more or less a foregone conclusion. And that's how the union reports it to the press. And because the press, because there are no labor reporters in the press anymore, the press basically takes the press release and reprints it and says, OK, well, this is what it is. The 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 issue is over now. And that's not what Sean Fain did in his live stream uh, last week. He said that, you know, this is what we have in this agreement. But he repeatedly reiterated that the membership has the final word on whether this is enough. Repeatedly emphasizing that point, that the membership is the highest authority in the union and they have the power to vote this agreement up or down. And that's huge. And that's true in the UAW and it's true in any other contract negotiations. But the leadership in many other unions, most other unions, do not emphasize that point like Sean Fain did, uh, giving the members, like, underlining for the members 
that they have the autonomy to decide whether this is enough. And I really love that. And because of that, the the business press has been reporting it much more cautiously. I even saw one headline, I think, I think in the Washington Post or the New York Times that said Ford has a tentative agreement with the UAW. Uh, tentative is the key word. Um, and so that's, you know, really great to see that that kind of language recognizing the autonomy um, that the members have in the democracy in the negotiation process. Really, really love that. And so this this is the first step in ratifying this agreement. They have reached a tentative agreement at the bargaining table. The next step is that the UAW's National Ford Council is going to vote on whether to send the tentative agreement to the membership, right? So this is basically a preliminary vote saying like, does the National Ford Council think this is enough? If the National Ford Council doesn't think it's enough, then it's not worth sending sending down to the membership and they're going to go back to the negotiating table. But Assuming that the Ford Council approves it, then the next step is that on Sunday, on Sunday night, Sean Fain said that they are going to be having a Facebook live stream to review the tentative agreement and uh, publicly and highlight giving a highlighter that will be published online and a change pages or a white uh, white book will be published online. And that's basically the con the, the, the contract and everywhere that there are there are changes to the contract so the changes will be marked out and the new language will be uh, will be put in the white book the fourth step is going to be regional meetings to walk through the tentative agreement with local leaders and then the fifth step is that locals will hold informational meetings to review and discuss tentative agreement and then hold ratification votes so um, very clearly laying out their democratic ratification bonus and um, much that that rhetoric is very 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 welcome as far as I'm concerned okay so without further ado, let's talk about what they want in this contract. The total value of this contract is mo- is over four times more than the value of the 2019 contract. <laughs> that is that is huge. Additionally, in this contract, there are more in raises than the past 22 years combined. So really, really big movement here. And so specifically in this contract, the general wage increase is 25%. The all wage increases from 2001 to 2022 were only 23%. So there's going to be more movement in the next four years on wages than there were over the past 20 years. In addition to the general wage increase, like we have repeatedly informed everybody on the shows, they won the 2009 Ford Cola formula back. And so uh, with estimates of inflation, the expectation is once you factor Cola in that the total wage increase is going to be 33% after Cola. So 25% general wage increase, 33% after COLA. So really, really big gains there. The top wage will increase about 33% through the 2023 agreement, through the end of the agreement. It's going to end in 2027. It's a four-year agreement. The starting wage will increase by about 68%. 
they were able to take the progression down from eight or nine years to three, which is something that the UAW has not had since the 90s. A three-year progression. So you're going to be starting 68% higher than you would have and getting to 33% higher than the previous ceiling in less than half the time. So really, really huge movement. Current temp temporary employees at Ford will get a 150% raise through the 2023 agreement. They're going to be making more than double uh, what they make now by 2027. Some workers at Sterling Axel and Rawsonville, which is their parts distribution centers, will be seeing up to an 85% raise immediately. <laughs> immediately on ratification because of how they had, remember the parts distribution centers uh, at Ford, GM and Stellantis were basically on a second tier of employment where, you know, they were making $20 an hour where the assembly plant workers were making like 30 something dollars an hour. And so they've eliminated that tier. Parts distribution centers at Ford are now on the assembly plant schedule. And so with that, the lowest paid workers at these parts distribution centers are going to be seeing an 85% raise immediately. I I mean, imagine almost doubling your salary overnight. That's what the UAW has done for these people at Ford. Um, they, uh, like I said, won back three-year wage progression, the 2009 COLA formula, and ending tiers. Since they launched the stand-up strike, Ford's offer has increased in value by 50%. They also won the right to strike over plant closures, which is totally unheard of. I don't think that the UAW has ever had an agreement like that in a contract with Ford. And what that means is a right to strike over plant closures. That means that over the course of this agreement, if Ford tries to outsource any of their production from the United States to other uh, to other uh, to other countries, or just to close a plant indefinitely, then the UAW is going to have the right to strike over that, to put pressure on the company to not follow through with that decision. Uh, unions have not had that amount of power written in black and white in a union contract. I don't think ever. That is a huge, huge concession from Ford. I mean, and, and, and you know, if you know anything about unions or collective bargaining or you've been part of the collective bargaining process, the no-strike clause is basically treated as sacrosanct. It is not, um, it, it's just taken for granted. There's not even really any discussion about it. It's just, okay, you know, we agree not to lock you out over the course of this contract and you agree not to strike. And so them getting this back, Huge, absolutely huge. There's also going to be a $5,000 signing bonus. Um, and in addition to the signing bonus, there are reportedly talks that there is going to be some amount of compensation on top of that for workers that have been on strike. Um, presumably not a one-to-one, -one, like a dollar for dollar, what they would have made if they had been working, but really any amount of compensation for having been on strike is another enormous, enormous concession on the part of Ford and a really big win from uh, for the UAW. So we are really, really excited to um, excited to see that. Jacob, I know that the details are still coming out on the agreement and 
Uh, I believe you mentioned that tomorrow night is when we're going to get a lot more information. Mm -hmm. Do we know much about the retirees? Um, we they did say they were not specific, but they did say that um, that there will be increases to current retiree contributions, increases to four hundred one k contributions, and I think they said there were going to be increases to pension payouts um, for folks that are. Um, uh, uh, for for, uh, for folks currently working when they retire, so um, so they were not super specific about the um changes to the retirement plans, but that there they did say that there had been movement. Right, right, and yeah, I just know particularly here in Alabama we have a lot of retired UAW members, uh, and so just curious of you know what we know right now, and of course mm -hmm. there there's just a lot more to find out. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see the full details, but. Uh, a lot of big wins already, and you know we'll see how the membership feels about it, and uh, we'll also see what happens with GM and Stellantis if they start to follow suit. But um, I mean, those numbers speak for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so on. Uh, I think I saw a question in the chat about whether or not they're going to be working, and the uh, there they are going to be returning to work at Ford uh, during the negotiation during the tentative agreement ratification process, and that's another benefit of the kind of stand up strike strategy is because um, this is going to put pressure on uh, put even more pressure on GM and Stellantis to come to a deal because um, the last thing that they want is for Ford's operations to be up and up and running uh, while the UAW is still striking GM and Stellantis. So a lot of flexibility and a lot of, um, you know, uh, a, a lot of wins at Ford uh, right. by the UAW. Right. And and one thing I think it's worth just remembering for folks, especially, you know, if you're listening to this and you're not a union member, you know, I, I hope it's it's worth pulling out like the fact that the members get to vote on this agreement, right? The, the members have the final say. Um, and collective bargaining is not a perfect process by any means, but compared to the alternative where you don't have any formal input into your wages and working conditions and benefits, the ability to have folks, uh, you know, to have input into folks negotiating and then the ability to vote on that agreement up or down, I think that is just a, you know, a, a taste of democracy in the workplace mm -hmm. that really is something that all workers should have the opportunity to enjoy. Um, and it's something that is a clear union advantage and union difference. Yep. Uh, and I think there are probably auto workers all over the area, uh, including right here in North Alabama, who are seeing this and listening to this and wondering, you know, how they can get in on it uh, and, and how they could actually, uh, you know, benefit from these sort of gains as well. Yep. And it's it's absolutely within uh, uh, within the power of the workers at these non-union automakers. Uh, they absolutely can get what the UAW has won at Ford and GM uh, because you know, and this is something that uh, th this is something that that people just don't they don't think about anymore. Um, or, or well, it had been when I was growing up. It, it kind of had been taken for granted that that plant work, manufacturing work was a that was a career that was a good job uh, that was a good paying middle class job and that is becoming less and less taken for granted it was taken for granted because of the labor movement 
the manufacturing jobs, production jobs, were not always good career middle class jobs. Absolutely They not. were, uh, in fact, some of the worst, most transient employment temporary work bottom of the barrel jobs that you could get before the unions came in and transformed them into real good paying jobs that could sustain a family and the reason that that is less and less being taken for granted is because the uh, corporations that have a high union density have been fighting their unions for the past four or five decades and uh, really taking back a lot of the things that unions have won. And there have been a lot of foreign non-union manufacturing companies come into the United States and have been fighting unions tooth and nail since they got here uh, so that they could continue a bottom-of-the-barrel employment approach. And so if we want to see manufacturing jobs being able to be taken for granted as a good paying uh, good paying occupation again then we're going to have to see a resurgence of union unionization in the manufacturing sector uh, and the hope is and I think there's a reasonable expectation that that's going to be led by the UAW uh, Sean Payne has said in a in one of his live streams that um, that 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 is his plan that you know we're going to win rec record contracts at the big three we are going to organize in non-union automakers uh, like we never have before and so uh, that's that's been explicitly laid out by the union as a strategy and um, and, and so there is every reason to expect that um, that that's what's going to happen. And uh, there's every reason to believe, uh, there's every reason to know for a fact that workers have the capability to turn this job, turn this profession into a good-paying, middle-class profession again. Uh, because it used to be, and it can be again. Um, obviously, there's going to need to be a, some attention paid to the law, uh, to the ability of companies to outsource and import goods made on bottom of the, made by you know bottom of the barrel, uh, race to the bottom, uh, exploitative conditions. Um, but there's a lot of things that you can that that can be done immediately to make these jobs better. Um, so. Palestine has been a huge, huge news item. I mean, that's that's basically all people are talking about as far as the news. And it is really, really amazing how quickly people will be smeared with the uh, with with the title anti-Semite just because you don't think it's good to kill a bunch of civilians it i mean it, that's just it's bonkers um <laughs> it doesn't reflect good on well on the seriousness of the people making those allegations and it 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 harkens back to the days in the 1950s when anybody who wanted an eight-hour day or a 40-hour work week, or a higher wage, or more time off, was called a communist and blacklisted. It harkens back to the days in after 2001, where if you didn't support the absolute flattening of the entire Middle East by the United States of America, you were considered a terrorist sympathizer. And that's exactly the language that's being used against people who don't believe that Israel should flatten Gaza 
and that don't believe at the very, very least that our tax dollars should go towards flattening Gaza. Remember, Gaza, the residency, uh, uh, it, it, <laughs> two million people live in Gaza, about 50% of which are under the age of 18. These people are obviously not responsible for what happened on October 7th. Obviously so. Obviously so. And people will retort that Hamas is the democratically elected government of Gaza. And so, for one, that's curious to me because I've always been told that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. So what is Israel and Gaza? Is Israel and Gaza the only democracies in the Middle East? So that's kind of strange. I thought Israel was the only democracy in the Middle East. Okay, uh, but putting that aside, Hamas was elected in Gaza in 2006 by, uh, in 2006. And so remember, the, approximately 50% of the people in Gaza are under the age of 18, right? So they couldn't even vote. Half the population can't vote now, much less could have voted for Hamas in 2006. According to statistical analysis, only 7% of people who currently live in Gaza <laughs> voted for Hamas. And so you cannot say that these people are responsible for what Hamas does. You can't hold them responsible and you can't go around willy-nilly murdering them. And the next, another response is that, oh, Israel cares about whether or not they kill civilians. That's the difference between them and Hamas. And I just want to read you a few quotes from members of Israel's government. And then you can tell me whether or not that assertion is true. Here is Ariel Kalner, a member of parliament from Netanyahu's Likud party. Right now, one goal, Nakba, a Nakba that will overshadow the Nakba of 48, Nakba in Gaza and Nakba to anyone who dares to join. And Nakba, remember, is the translation is catastrophe. That is what people refer to when they talk about that. That is the name given to the event in which hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were expelled from their homes. So that's what he's wanting again. He's explicitly saying, we just want to get rid of every Palestinian in Gaza and take it over. Revital Gottlieb, another parliament member from the Likud party, said, only an explosion that shakes the Middle East will restore the country's dignity, strength, and security. It's time for a doomsday weapon, shooting powerful missiles without limit, not flattening a neighborhood, crushing and flattening Gaza. <laughs> Giora Island, a reservist major general and former head of the Israeli National Security Council, wrote in a popular Hebrew-language newspaper, the state of Israel has no choice but to turn Gaza into a place that is temporarily or permanently impossible to live in. Israel needs to create a humanitarian crisis in Gaza, compelling tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands to seek refuge in Egypt or the Gulf. 
and indeed that Israel must demand that the entire population of Gaza will either move to Egypt or move to the Gulf. Gulf. Gaza will become a place where no human being can exist. Here's another quote. Minister of Foreign Affairs Eli Cohen said, At the end of this war, not only will Hamas no longer be in Gaza, the territory of Gaza will also decrease. Israeli minister Gideon Sa'ar said that Gaza must be smaller by the end of the war, specifying that he meant both in the east and the north, because losing land is the price of loss that Arabs understand. We must make the end of our campaign clear to everyone around us. Whoever starts a war against Israel must lose territory. There's also been uh, scoffing at the idea that the international community should care what happens to Palestinian babies laughing and scoffing and yelling at news people who ask questions about that. Journalists' families have been murdered. The family, the entire family of one Al Jazeera journalist was killed in an Israeli airstrike after Blinken told Qatar that Al Jazeera needs to, the day after, Blinken told Qatar that Al Jazeera needs to uh, uh, cut back on their coverage of Israel-Palestine. There have been references to Palestinians as human animals. Palestinians, not Hamas. I mean, really wicked, wicked rhetoric. And that is why some people in the labor movement, an increasing number of people in the labor movement, are calling for a ceasefire, are backing the calls for a ceasefire by uh, Jewish peace groups and other human rights organizations in Gaza, including Mark Demenstein, the president of the American Postal Workers Union. I mentioned this in last week in Southern Labor, but the AFL-CIO Executive Council had a meeting last week where Mark Demenstein uh spoke at length about the crisis reportedly in the New York Times, um, saying that the AFL-CIO needs to call for a ceasefire. Uh, And indeed, that is what Palestinian trade unions have called on uh, labor internationally to call for. Palestinian trade unions have called on trade unions across the world to uh, no longer, to, to cease shipment and production of uh, arms and weapons that are um, slated to be sent to Israel, and they have called on uh, labor internationally to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, the bombing campaign in Gaza has now killed six, seven thousand people. The uh, <laughs> about half of whom are under the age of eighteen. Mm. I mean. Uh, They have bombed the building beside and thus uh, damaged the structure of the third oldest church in the world, (laughs) killing Christians, killing Christians, Christians, the the relatives of former congressional representative Justin Amash. People forget that. But Palestinians 
are Muslims and Christians and some Jews that Israel is killing. And for that, for saying that, hey, we should maybe take a step back and, <laughs> and stop killing a bunch of people, people are being called terrorists. It's absolutely... Um, I mean, it's just amazing, especially additionally, when you consider another thing to consider is that Hamas recently released a um, conditions for the surrender of the hostages. The condition for the surrender of the foreign born hostages is just a five day ceasefire. Five days of no bombs in Gaza. Again, and remember, the Palestinian people have no control over what Hamas does. There are no elections. They, they, they have no way to control what Hamas does, which is why the destruction of Gaza is a war crime, is collective punishment. Because, I mean, even if the people in Gaza had a say over what Hamas does, it would still be something like collective punishment because, uh, you know, People in the United States voted in 2004 for George Bush, but that would not have given uh, people the justification to murder a bunch of American civilians. And, and, and so it is even more unacceptable and unjustifiable to do the same to Palestinian civilians who have no, <coughs> no say over the governing body. It's just really, really insane. And so uh, Hamas has said five-day ceasefire, foreign-born, um, and foreign-born hostages will be let go. To get the, uh, for the Israeli um, hostages, they have said that, let's pull this up. Oh, well, I thought I had it. Hmm. I can't remember what it was for the Israeli hostages, but it was, I, I do not remember it being uh, something insane, uh, something that seems unreasonable, which is obviously, you know, it's not in any at all remote defense of Hamas or what they did on October the 7th. This is just to say that the Palestinian people are not responsible and that, and that not only is it not justifiable to murder them and ethnically cleanse the region, kill a bunch of babies. It is, in fact, going to be the breeding ground for either the next generation of Hamas recruits or something very similar, if not worse, to Hamas. Because how would you feel if a government kills your entire family, your entire family that had never done anything to harm the government that killed your entire family, what would that do to your psyche? And, and, and you know, people pretend not to understand that. People pretend not to understand that. <clears throat> Another union that has been kind of at the center of this, uh, of the issue with, uh, in Palestine and Israel in the American discourse is Starbucks Workers United, where Starbucks Workers United put out a tweet that was, um, was, I, I would agree, was uncouth and, and not, you know, not really representative of a thoughtful position on the conflict and was quickly taken down, was not approved by the union membership. 
But because of that tweet, that one tweet, Starbucks is now waging a campaign trying to smear and tar the entirety of the membership of Starbucks Workers United as terrorist supporters or an anti-Semitic. And uh, just really, really gross, craven, cynical stuff because, of course, the people who are saying these things know it not to be true. They obviously know it not to be true. And so in uh, for In These Times magazine, Lynn Fox, the international president of Workers United, which is the union that Starbucks Workers United is affiliated with, she wrote an op-ed uh, uh, responding to Starbucks attacks on, on her union and on these people's membership. And she opened with the fact that my grandmother and my aunt were murdered at Treblinka one of the deadliest Nazi concentration camps. Six months before liberation, my grandfather died in Nordhausen. This is a Jewish international president, international union president, responding to this. And so she says, you, and so, you know, and she went more into her family's history and, and then she says, so you can imagine my shock and deep hurt when this week the world's largest coffee company launched a series of attacks on me and more than 9,000 Starbucks workers who have voted to join together in a union alleging that we support terrorism, hate, and violence. She says the company seized on a single tweet from, Star from the Starbucks Workers United Twitter account expressing solidarity with Palestine that was written by one person and not authorized by the union or its workers and that was quickly deleted. It conveniently ignored other tweets that called for peace. And that's a crucial thing to understand if you actually want to be in good faith about what's going on the work uh starbucks workers united have put out a very clear statement on palestine and here's what they said the members of starbucks workers united stand in solidarity with the palestinians people's right to self-determination we are opposed to violence and each death each death that obviously means the israeli deaths the israel the, the deaths of israeli civilians each death occurring as the result of violence is a trage tragedy, and we absolutely condemn anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Our union's members endorse the comprehensive statement of support from Jewish Voice for Peace, which provides powerful context on why we all must stand in solidarity with Palestinians. This statement reflects the diversity of our campaign. We are a union with Jewish, Palestinian, and Muslim workers. We condemn the occupation, displacement, and state violence, apartheid, and threats of genocide Palestinians face. Furthermore, we condemn Starbucks for shamefully using this devastating humanitarian crisis to make false statements against our union and to vilify us. Our members face threats and harassment across our country, which are disproportionately affecting our Muslim, Jewish, and Palestinian co-workers. If Starbucks is concerned about the, quote, safety and well-being of its workers, as they have recently claimed, we suggest that the company bargain in good faith with us regarding the health and safety proposed by the union months ago. Instead, it appears the company seeks to score points by baselessly attacking our union. We demand Starbucks apologize and acknowledge the harm they've done. We call on other labor unions to stand in solidarity with Starbucks Workers United on these two issues. And so this is a very clear statement, very clearly, clearly not supporting 
any of the acts of violence from Hamas, the acts of terrorism on October the 7th, and yet Starbucks were, uh, and yet Starbucks is is continuing with this baseless lie and uh, suing Starbucks Workers United for copyright infringement, uh, which is a case that has been tried and, and failed by other companies. But that's not going to stop Starbucks. The company is using that one tweet too. And this is back to the op-ed from Lynn Fox. The company is using that one tweet to, over and over again, falsely paint Workers United, whose forerunners, the International Ladies Garment, uh, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union (ILGWU) and the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union, were founded by Jewish immigrants who welcomed workers of every race, religion, and ethnicity. They are tarring these people as unhinged supporters of terrorism. Like the Starbucks workers who are building their union, the ILGWU was founded at the turn of the last century mostly by young workers. Many in the labor movement at the time thought that because they were mainly young women, they were unorganizable as some today think of baristas and other food service workers. Never mind the fact, Starbucks saw an opportunity to capitalize on the horror and tragic events in the Middle East to further its unprecedented illegal union-busting campaign, trying to bully workers into abandoning their union name and logo via a cease and desist letter and a federal lawsuit. And then, this and even more crazy stuff coming out because people always talk about how unions want to destroy business. Unions don't want to destroy the businesses they work for. They want to turn the businesses that they work for into more democratic organizations, into organizations that can provide living wages and better working conditions for their people, that can provide better services to their communities. Obviously, unions don't want to destroy their, uh, the businesses that they work for. It doesn't even make sense if you think about it for less than half a second. But that's what people say. And yet, Starbucks now, Lynn says, their attacks have reached a new level when on Thursday, October 19th, the Orthodox Jewish Chamber of Commerce posted on its website that it had spoken to Starbucks founder Howard Schultz and worked with him and the Starbucks corporate team to identify unionized Starbucks stores that the OJC's members could boycott. Wow. So an implicit endorsement of a boycott of their own stores based on a lie to try to destroy the union. <laughs> None of this is about any concern for Jewish people or Israelis or Palestinians. This is all a cover by Starbucks to try to destroy the union, to try to slander the members of the union. And people who pretend not to see that for what it is are, are doing exactly that. They're pretending. They're lying. Lynn says, I, along with the leaders of Workers United, am responsible for these 9,000-plus workers, most of whom are in their teens and early 20s. We spoke to a 16-year-old who was on the organizing committee of the St Scottsboro Starbucks Union. They're rightfully terrified by all of this, especially given the heightened tensions around the conflict in the Middle East and the fact that we've already seen disgusting acts of, bi of bigoted violence in the United States. I am afraid, one worker told us. My mom doesn't want me to go to work. Another wrote, I saw this and started panicking. Starbucks is putting its own employees at risk. Starbucks is doing this by saying that these people, everybody at union stores, supports terrorism. 
I mean, what is the actual reasonable response if you see people that support terrorism? Certainly not economically supporting them is one thing you would do, but you would potentially even be moved to violence, right? If somebody actually legitimately supports unjustified terrorism, then what else do you do but react with violence? That's what Starbucks is doing to these workers. She says the company's board must step in and put a stop to Starbucks action before someone gets hurt. If my dad were here, I know he would want me to speak out in his memory and channeling his strength and resilience. I do so here. Never forget. And so that's what's happening with Starbucks and, uh, and, and Palestine. And that's another good, you wrote this in the notes doc, Adam. Where are the free speech warriors? People are being fired left and right for the silliest of reasons. Not because, the, you know, there are some people that are out of line, that are far out of line, I have seen, in my view. But the vast majority of people are simply saying that Israel needs to end its destruction of Gaza. And for that, people are being fired. And of course, and over tweets, and remember, actually, I don't know, Adam, if you knew this, but Elon Musk said when he took over the website that he would fund the defense of anybody who was fired for their tweets. Really? I wonder how that's going. Yeah. I am not aware of him uh, funding the defense of anybody who has been retaliated against for their support of the Palestinian people, however. Yeah, I haven't heard that. Uh, Must have missed it. I must have missed it. Yeah. So, really, really, really gross stuff. Yeah, Starbucks is just incredibly cynical. Yeah. Absolutely gross stuff. Um, and so, you know, there we go. Appreciate everybody tuning in. And we've got about 30 people watching us only on YouTube on, and only, uh, 10 likes. So let's get those numbers up. If we could, we appreciate everybody in the chat. Uh, like I said, we've got Strom, we've got Chloe, uh, in the chat. Appreciate that. Sid, David, thank you all for joining infinite content. Um, and Strom with a $5 super chat says, why should any industry not be an industry of career tier jobs? Indeed, that's a, that is, that is, um, a question that has an answer. And the answer is there is no reason that any industry should not be an industry of career tier jobs. Any industry, uh, if it's worth doing and if it needs to be done, then you ought to be paid well to do it. Jacob says, uh, not me, says, thank y'all for covering this. I know it's hard to see this as a working class labor issue, but it very much is. And absolutely, it very much is uh, because (laughs) the people being killed are are, are workers, right? (laughs) I mean, right? That's the issue. That that is what is at issue. That's why it's a labor issue. Not only, you know, in addition to the fact that the people who are being killed are workers and, um, you know, unionism ought to be international in its outlook. And so therefore, when workers are being attacked anywhere, workers are being attacked everywhere, and we should all stand in solidarity with workers when they are under attack. But also because uh, we are the ones, or, or workers in the United States, by and large, are the ones producing the weapons. And so this is something that that is very, very relevant to people. And, and we're funding it to the tune of nearly $4 billion yeah. a year in military aid to the state of Israel, which is carrying out these war crimes. 
Yeah. So, you know, we're paying for that. TSAL Collective, I think that's Charles, says, um, and this is another thing that that's uh, important <laughs> that, that people, that, that came out yesterday, I think it was, uh, Biden said in a statement that they have given Israel no red lines regarding their treatment of Gaza, including their treatment of the American hostages. And that's another thing about this that people don't really ever kind of reckon with. Uh, where would Hamas be keeping the hostages? Presumably, they don't know. They haven't said. If they knew, presumably, they would send special forces in and, and get them and take them out. The hostages are unaccounted for. They don't know where they are. They could very well be being killed in these bombings. If the concern was actually for the hostages, which I'm concerned about, I could not imagine being held hostage for weeks on end and then being held hostage for weeks on end while my own government is bombing the ground above me. Presumably they're in some of these tunnels. The ground above me. I could not imagine being the relative of one of these hostages concerned for their safety uh, from Israel as much as Hamas. But, that you know, the concern is not actually for the hostages. The concern is for their value as propaganda objects. Ninety one Kella says, um, I'm with UAW local five fifty one in Chicago on strike for a month with Ford. C crew went back today. A crew go back goes back A crew goes back Monday and B crew goes back Tuesday. Scale pay was thirty one sixty an hour. Very good. Very good. Uh I know that after a month on strike, I know that y'all are ready to start getting paychecks again. So I'm really happy. Really happy for y'all. That y'all got this and that y'all are gonna be going back to work soon with a good contract. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and take our final break. We're going to be right back with Boss Watch. We're going to be right back with Boss Watch to talk to you about what Southern bosses were up to in the last week. Don't go anywhere. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and neighbors are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough to keep their jobs. We need to fix this. Let's close the health care coverage gap. To learn more, visit CoverAlabama.org. Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. 
We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans, and we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers, and we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. I'm attorney Tommy Senyard. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. As labor union members, we face our share of challenges in the workplace. But today, I want to talk about a different kind of challenge, the climate crisis. We've all seen the fury of Mother Nature, the storms that can turn lives upside down in an instant. That's why Hometown Action is launching our Climate Protection Project. We're heading out to 10 rural communities, listening to local folks, and taking action with them to protect communities impacted by climate disasters. And we need you, our union brothers and sisters, to join us. Together, we'll make a difference. Our strength on the job is undeniable, and now it's time to put that strength to work for the planet. Let's protect our communities, our families, and our future. Visit hometownaction.org today and sign up to volunteer for the Climate Protection Canvas. Talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host Adam Keller. We are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. We have got the likes up over the break. We are now at 50 people watching us live. Only 36 likes, however, up from 10. Let's get those numbers up. Uh, should be at least even. Come on, folks. There's at least at least 13 of y'all out there that are watching me listening to me right now on youtube haven't liked the stream 
If you haven't liked the stream, you might not even be subscribed to the show. Subscribe to the show. Subscribe to the channel so that you never miss anything that we put out because we're always putting out stuff. Um, always putting out good stuff, might I add. Adam, you've got an event coming up soon. Talk to us about it. Sure thing. Yeah, I do have an event. I wanted to make sure I mentioned this for the FM radio audience as well. Uh, on Tuesday, November 14th, I'm going to be hosting a People's Town Hall in Huntsville, working with Alabama Arise. This will be my first event with Alabama Arise. And uh, we're going to have a town hall Tuesday, November 14th from 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. at the Huntsville Downtown Library. Uh, it's going to be in the auditorium. And um, really, I, I'm looking forward to it. We're going to have some breakout group discussions on worker policy. So I'm really hoping union folks will show up for that, uh, as well as criminal justice reform and health care. Uh, there'll be space if, you know, you have other statewide policy issues you want to talk about. Uh, but, you know, just to sort of walk you through what we're going to do, uh, this is going to be open for members of the public and, you know, of course, Alabama Rise members, labor union members, allies, uh, anyone who's interested in building a better Alabama for all of us. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about what Alabama Rise is and our priorities, uh, preview a couple of key issues, and then break out into these groups uh, just to have some some good conversations around these these really important areas that affect all of us. Uh, again, those are criminal justice, health care, and worker policy. Uh, so at the end, we'll report back uh, as a whole group, kind of share what we learned, what we discussed, the ideas that were thrown around, um, and, and really take a look at what are some of the policy solutions that we could put forward in Alabama? What could we do uh, to make Alabama a better place for all of us, especially the least of these here in our state? And, um, and then we'll wrap up. And I really am looking forward to it. Uh, we just kind of went live with the event page uh, or the event details over the past couple days. Uh, there's a Facebook event out there. Uh, those of you on the Alabama Rise email list, I think, uh, already received something. Uh, but again, that's Tuesday, November 14th, uh, 5.30 to 7. Y'all come on out if you want to talk about some statewide policy issues and, and just meet your neighbors and, and hear from other folks about what their concerns are. Uh, really looking forward to it. And, um, you know, again, I, I really hope some labor union folks hope to see some union can there to discuss worker policy and brainstorm on, you know, what would it look like if we had worker advocates in Montgomery? What would it look like if we could pass legislation that benefited workers in the state of Alabama? Um, you know, what are some government actions uh, that would actually change things for working class people? Because we need that change so desperately here. Um, you know, I don't have to tell y'all that conditions for working folks here in Alabama um, are well beyond um Shameful, shameful, really, uh, the conditions here faced by so many working people uh, and so many people in poverty. Uh, so anytime we can gather folks together, everyday people to come together, talk about our common interest and how we can work together to make things better, uh, I'm all about it. So, yeah, y'all are invited. Come on out. All right. 
let's go ahead and talk about Boss Watch. Boss Watch is a segment that we do every week where we talk about what bosses were up to in the South and the U.S. Because you're all the time seeing mugshots on the news about somebody engaging in petty theft or trespassing, but you never see when bosses do it. So we want to make sure that you do here at the very least. Over in Kentucky, less than six months after an investigation found three Kentucky fast food franchises employing more than 300 children outside of federally allowed hours, the U.S. Department of Labor has discovered another Louisville restaurant enterprise violating child labor laws, this time with 55 children at nine locations across the state of Kentucky. Investigators from the department's Wage and Hour Division determined Cockadoodle-Doo LLC operating as Rooster's Wings employed 14 and 15-year-olds beyond what is legally allowed at nine of its locations across Kentucky. The agency found these 55 employees working past 7 p.m. from the day after Labor Day through May 31st and past 9 p.m. from June the 1st through Labor Day and more than eight hours on a non-school day, and more than 18 hours during a school week. The agency assessed $43,000 in penalties for cockadoodle-doo to address the child labor violations, but that's not all. In addition to the child labor violations, the employer failed to combine the hours when employer employees worked across multiple locations within the same work week. By doing so, the company paid straight time rates to the employees for all hours worked instead of the time and a half rate due for hours worked over 40 as the law requires. The agency recovered a staggering $182,000 in back wages and liquidated damages for seven workers to account for these violations. Split 200 grand between seven folks. I'm going to be pretty happy about that. Uh, well, uh, although it's money that was owed to me already, that was stolen from me, but they're not going to go to jail. They just got to give me my money back. Over in Mississippi, Olin Corporation, one of the world's leading small arms and ammunition makers, has entered into an agreement with the U.S. Department of Labor in which the employer will pay $630,000 in back wages and interest to resolve alleged hiring discrimination against 286 black and women applicants who applied for positions over two years at its Oxford facility. A routine compliance investigation of Olin Corporation by the Department's Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs alleged that from December the 9th, 2017 through December the 9th, 2019, the federal contractor violated Executive Order 11246 when hiring for Adjuster 2 positions. The order prohibits federal contractors from discriminating in employment based on race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, or national origin. Olin Corporation entered into an early resolution conciliation agreement and agreed to take steps to make sure its selection process, personnel practices, and hiring policies are free from discrimination. The employer will also offer jobs to 46 black and female affected applicants as positions become available. Over in Alabama, and here's something that I wanted to point out because these people actually did go to jail, but not for the reason you might think. The chief financial officer for a Shelby County agency is accused of stealing nearly 200 
$1,000 to fund cosmetic surgery, a Florida vacation, and more. This is from AL.com. Cindy Massey, 65, of Pell City, served as CFO for the Ark of Shelby County, an advocacy agency for child and adults with developmental disabilities. Massey was booked into the Shelby County Jail this week on a theft of property charge and released the same day after posting a $30,000 bond. From May the 1st, 2022 through August the 15th, 2023, Massey and her 36-year-old daughter, Jennifer Massey, each used company credit cards to make hundreds of purchases in St. Clair, <coughs> Shelby, and Jefferson County, as well as over the internet in Florida and in Florida record state. These purchases included rent on a personal residence, car payments, car repairs, veterinary services, at least one Florida vacation, cosmetic surgery procedures, inmate phone credits at the Shelby County Jail, and internet purchases delivered to Pelham. Massey then used her position as CFO to use ARC's funds to pay the credit bills, according to the complaint. Jennifer Massey is also charged with theft of property, property, but has not yet been taken into custody. She is also charged with probation violation for a previous identity theft conviction. And here's the thing. I talked about they went to jail. or they're, One of them has been to jail, released on a $30,000 bond. The other is going to be arrested soon, presumably. But that's because... They stole from a corporation. Because corporations are people so much so that if you steal from them, you go to jail. And yet, if you steal from workers in the form of not paying us our legally due wages, you do not go to jail. You get a slap on the wrist at best. The most you can expect to happen to you is that you have to give me back what you stole from me. That's it, right? That's like the height of restitution that workers can expect. <laughs> and yet corporations are so much so people that if you steal from them, even as, the, as an executive officer of said corporation, you'll go to jail. It is just such a an, such an indictment of society that in many ways corporations are viewed as more of a person than the workers they employ. Uh pretty pretty sick stuff. Uh, the last last story is in Texas, where two employees of a national tank cleaning company suffered injuries when exposed to hydrogen sulfide, a flammable, highly toxic, colorless gas that was present during the cleaning process of a tanker truck on April 25, 2023, in Beaumont, Texas. Two municipal firefighters responding to the scene also suffered injuries from the gas. Federal investigators determined that the employer, TriMac Transportation Incorporated, which operates as National Tank Services, did not provide adequate respiratory protection, resulting in two employees being transported to the hospital, one of them being hospitalized due to the exposure. The first responders were treated on the scene. Investigators with the U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration found National Tank Services did not evaluate the work site for possible respiratory hazards like the one that sickened the workers and did not monitor the employees for exposure to other substances. The company also failed to provide workers with appropriate respirators, manage a required respiratory protection program to provide workers with medical evaluations prior to respirator use, and failed to conduct respiratory fit testing. OSHA proposed 
penalties of about $400,000 to the company after citing nine health violations, including two willful, three repeat, and four serious. Investigators also found National Tank Services again failed to provide protective clothing, eye, face, and hand protection, did not label containers, and failed to provide injury and illness logs to OSHA within four business hours. Violations previously cited in the past five years at their facilities in Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas. Workers were also exposed to fall hazards because the company failed to install mid-rails on the stairway and on the catwalk platform guardrail system. A subsidiary of Trimark Transportation of Canada, National Tank Services, operates 30 maintenance and tank cleaning operations across North America. The company is 15 business days from receipt of citations and penalties to comply, to request an informal conference with OSHA's area director, or to contest the findings before the Independent Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. Adam, uh, tell us our plugs. All right, y'all. Let's wrap it up. Uh, as they do each month, our friends at Labor Notes are hosting a series of online trainings. Definitely recommend you check that out. Labornotes.org slash events. Uh, as I mentioned, People's Town Hall on Tuesday, November 14th from 530 to 7 p.m. at the downtown Huntsville Library. Our friends at the Southern Workers Assembly are hosting the Southern Worker School November 10th through 12th in Charlotte, North Carolina. Check out our interview last week to learn more. Uh, I will be the guest speaker for the Green Party of Madison County meeting on November 8th at the North Huntsville Public Library, going to talk about labor and the environment. On that note, uh, Saturday, November 4th, the Huntsville Chapter of Citizens Climate Lobby is hosting a watch party at the South Huntsville Public Library from 11 to 4. Folks will be tuning in to a virtual conference called Grassroots Rising, Leveling Up in the Climate Fight. Finally, there will be a demonstration at Decatur City Hall on Sunday, October 29th at 4 p.m. demanding justice for Steve Perkins. And um, also, don't forget, we'll be back with Shop Talk on Thursday uh, at 9.30. And if you're not already on our email list, definitely sign up at tvlr.fm. All right, folks, that's going to wrap it up for our uh, the first half of our show today. We appreciate everybody tuning in, but we've got a whole second half of the show where we're going to be talking to Tom Ricks about his book, Waging a Good War. I'm really excited about this. I haven't been able to finish it, unfortunately. I don't know if you have, Adam, but it is a book about military strategy in the civil rights movement, and you'll be surprised at how... Uh, Related, those two things are. We are also going to be calling in to a uh, another show Saturday in the Shoals on one of our partner stations, WZZA. They've got a Saturday show at noon. And uh, they've asked us to jump on, and so we will. We're going to be talking to them, and we're going to be streaming it on our end as well. So you don't want to miss that. Um, yeah. So find us on YouTube or on Facebook at The Valley Labor Report. Continue listening to the show. 844-899-TVLR is the number if you want to talk to us in the second half of the show. That's the place to call in. 844-899-8857. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.